Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Brought to you by Pariah Pickups. Handcrafted quality pickups made down in Detroit, Rock City. Check them out. PariahPickups.com. My guest this week is Jonathan Gross. Jonathan worked for years at the Toronto Sun, the Toronto Star, as a rock critic. And uh, he's also a former contributor to Rolling Stone magazine. Great rock writer. We had a great conversation. He has a load of stories. Check it out. Jonathan Gross, thank you very much for taking the time today. How are you doing, man? I'm, I'm extremely busy. No, I, I, <laughs> I appreciate it. You know what? I think after so many years, and we were talking about this before we hit the record button, that you know, there's, there's a lot of rock historians out there. And this many years later, you find your name popping up. Yes. Certainly you do. And it's good news and bad news. It's been a lot of years away, but um, it, it's fun to have a little bit of equity in the past. Mm-hmm. I got an email I got an email from a Facebook post from Cleve Anderson. So I had a punk rock band when I was with the Toronto Sun okay. called the Battered Newsman. <laughs> was this like, and, la- and like late we 70s? O- we o- and we opened, yeah, we opened for the Battered Wives which was Cleve's punk rock band before he got into Blue Rodeo. And he says he wants to do a documentary about it, about the wives, because they were kind of controversial. Yeah. And he says, you opened for us at the Elba Combo. Is there any footage of you? And this thing, I said, come on, that was 42 years ago. Wow. Give me, give, give me a break. I love you. I had a great time. <laughs> That's crazy. A lot of people don't know that Blue Rodeo was a punk band before. I think they left. No, no, no. He joined Blue Rodeo after the wives blew up. But didn't they go to... Blue Rodeo, Cuddy and Jim Cuddy and who's the other guy? I forget his name. They had a band called the High Thighs. Right. They were waiters at a restaurant across the street from where I lived. Okay. And they were kind of new new wavy. And then they formed Blue Rodeo in the early, mid, like 80s. And Cleve was their drummer for a thousand years. Ah. Cleve, Cleve worked at the post. Cleve was a postman, so he couldn't go on the road all the time. But they kind of crafted their schedule around him. A lovely guy. And so he sent me a note. So that's my past coming back to haunt me. There is a photo of the battered newsman somewhere in my archive. I had no idea. You know, we opened for a couple of bands. We opened for, we had, we, you know, opened for Teenage Head. No, we had a few dates. Oh, wow. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're at the Toronto Sun. You're a rock critic in the late 70s, early 80s. That's right. You're a former contributor to Rolling Stone magazine. After that, yes. Yeah. I, I, what happened to me was I was a, a kid. Uh, I was a sports editor for the University of Toronto. Mm-hmm. And my father knew somebody at the Sun, which I had never read. And he got me a summer job there 45 years ago. Okay. And I had a great time. I wasn't writing rock and roll, but I was a photographer. Okay. So I was in varsity. A couple of guys taught me how to take photos. I had a couple of cameras. So I started going to shooting rock concerts for them. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of fun, and, and I was—I had a great time. No, no one had more fun than I did. And then I went back to school, finished my degree, came back freelance again, and then I got a job, uh, I was 23, in an upstart paper in Ottawa mm-hmm. called Ottawa Today, which was a sun-like tabloid. Okay. They were try- I mean, I, going back, you're, you're putting a third newspaper in Ottawa, and you had the Globe in there, you had the Montreal Gazette, it was like a hub for newspapers, eh? it was the capital. So this paper lasted eight months. And I was the junior sports writer covering Quebec hockey in the universities, but they didn't have a rock critic. Okay. So my future friend Howard Lapidus was, God rest his soul, was the promoter there. Worked for Harvey Glatt, 
So I started hanging around with him. I started reviewing shows, and I had a ton of fun. And I had a pretty sharp wit, and I took pictures. So they were saving money. I could shoot the show and review it. Mm-hmm. And then the paper folded about eight months in. It was too bad. I had a lot of fun. And then the Sun hired me back uh, in '78, sort of the spring. Okay. And they had a rock critic there named Wilder Penfield III, who, who was a lovely guy. But what was happening then was the Queen Street thing started to happen, right? All that punk rock, diodes, curse, vile tones. And Wilder was the kind of guy who would go and have lunch with Dan and Muscuri. He, he wasn't involved in this. He didn't like it. Okay. I, I loved it. You know, I, I just thought this was the greatest stuff. And I, I'd been in New York. My sister lived there. And I knew, like, you know, seeing the Ramones, you know, I was kind of into it. Saw the Ramones and Max's Kansas City. Mm. Talking Heads were opening. They were a trio. I mean, this is way back. Yeah. So I was into the music. I was into the scene. There was nobody really covering it. So that was my thing. Okay. Reviewed a lot of shows, uh, all the shows in Ontario Place. Wilder still did the big shows. I didn't do many big shows. And then there was a real boom in concerts. I mean, it was crazy. Uh, there was a lot of concerts to review, so I, I, I got to be a full-time rock critic. Great. After about a year. And I lasted about four years. What happened to me was, and, and you know, it was time for me to go. I was 29. And it's going to be a little bit much. The Sun had, had made some kind of a deal with CPI. They tried to establish the band shell of the CNE as a major venue. And I, in print, kind of went after them. I said, this is a horrible venue. <laughs> this, this is a venue made for 1,000 people. You can't put 15,000 people in this shithole. <laughs> it's a horrible sound. They put shows in there. So my editor, who's a lovely guy, he said, you know, this can't really happen. So he kind of asked me what I was doing with my life. And I said, maybe it's time for me to go. And I fell on my sword and walked. They threw me parties. I had a great time. And then I moved to New York because I'd been contributing to Rolling Stone the last year or so. They had a magazine called The Record, which was where they moved all their music. When the music business died mm-hmm. after disco, they moved most of there. And I became an editor there. And I had a lot of connections, right? When I was in the sun, I could go to London and hang out with Boy George. I could go on the road with The Who. You know, so a lot of that stuff found its way into these magazines. And I lived in New York, and I, I freelanced for Danny Fields and a couple. I had a great time. But when I was in New York, I, I, and I came back to Toronto, and actually in 84, uh, the star hired me to write a music video column. Okay. Uh, it lasted four or five years, you know, which was a ton of fun. Yeah, wow. So, and, and on the same token, yeah, I had a column in the Star Weekly, uh, the TV guide, every week for about four years. Hmm. And I was a promoter. I, I went to New York, and I was the first guy to write about Run DMC ever. Wow. Because I, I ran into Nile Rogers at a club. Mm-hmm. He said, look, this rock and roll's dead here. And CBTV was just about dying at that point. Yeah. And, I, and this Run DMC had, um, was it, was it, they had a huge hit. And it was a rock and roll hit. And uh, I went uh, up for Chinese food with these guys. Well, walk it this way with this way. No, 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 no. Before that. Uh, Eddie, Eddie Martinez played guitar on it. it, it it's a heavy track. And they had a video. And they were lovely guys. They went to college. And so I, I wrote about them. And, and, and no one knew who these guys were. Mm. I wrote about them. I, I, I got in with Russell and Rick Rubin. And I said, you know, nobody's doing this in Toronto at all. Mm-hmm. So I started bringing hip-hop back into Toronto. And I brought Run DMC in at the Heaven Disco on Blur Street. People went nuts. It was crazy. What year was this? 84. Wow. Lisa Lisa, the cult jam. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Houdini, one of the guys passed away a few weeks ago. I remember Houdini. Uh, I, had a lot, I didn't make a lot of money, but I, I had a lot of fun. And so... 
it was one of those things. I was out for dinner with John Ramos, who's a promoter, and he said, "Man, you're a legend." <laughs> and I brought the Beastie Boys up because no one did this. No one knew these people. Don't forget, this is back then when there was no internet. You had to go down and see the band. Of course, yeah, yeah. And I was bringing up. I had I had a music video show on CFMT, mm-hmm. and I was bringing up music videos that no one could ever see. Like I, I had all this hip hop stuff in the states, and very obscure stuff like. Um, Divine sounds, you know, what people do for money. You couldn't hear that in Canada. And so I did that for a few years until I got married and my wife said, you can't stop me. You know, I'm a white guy. You kind of, it was hard. Yeah, I can see and, that. And Ron, and, and Ron Nelson kind of took over that world. And God bless Ron. He's a lovely guy. He, he was the promoter in Canada for hip hop for a long time. And he was a believer. I knew when he was a 16-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. So he kind of took that business over. And I hope he made some money. Very difficult business because nobody buys advanced tickets. So that was kind of my career. I had a little label from 77, 78 to the late 80s. You know, that, that's kind of it in the promoting and the writing. And then I moved on, you know, so mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that later. So when you talk about the songs that I gave you for this, yeah, very few of them happened during my career. Okay. There's always stuff that I, I fell in love with as a kid, which kind of drove my passion for it. When you're writing about it, you're going to the shows, and unfortunately, at one point, it becomes business. Like I said, there's a couple of things that we'll talk about, but uh, the songs that, that drove me as a kid drove me, got me excited about music. Mm-hmm. And when you're a critic, when you're a critic in your 20s, you're still soft-tissued enough to get excited. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think in my 30s I could have got excited about it. Right. <laughs> and I didn't want to be cynical. Well, good for you. That often That's why happens. I stopped kind of writing about it. Yeah, good. I had, no one had more fun in their 20s than I did. Nobody. Mm. Nobody, nobody, nobody. So that's cool. So, so I, I thank you for having me on, on this uh, podcast. So far, I'm having a good time. So far, I'm having a good time, too. So let's talk about your songs. We'll see if we can keep it going. So Hall & Oates, She's Gone is your first tune. All right. Look, look. <laughs> I uh, had a girlfriend like three, four years ago, right? Okay. And we broke up, and she'd gone to school in Philadelphia. And I knew Daryl Hall. And I've, I've been a Hall & Oates fan, like, going back to, like, I went to school in Pennsylvania, so I knew who these guys were. And I brought it up because, for guys, that's the number one breakup song of all. <laughs> I had a breakup and had some dark nights, and I put on Hall & Oates, she's gone. And, and I don't know, works for me. And, and that's the definition also of blue-eyed soul. Yes. You know, they were good guys. Uh, I always had a good time with Daryl. I used to go to school in Pennsylvania. There was a group called Jay and the Techniques. Okay. They're from uh, Allentown. And they had two head hits called Keep the Ball Rolling in the 60s. And he, he always admired that kind of harmony. And, you know, yeah, a great guy. And so that song got me through a lot of dark nights after several relationships that went sour for one reason or another. And But that's growing up. That record came out like 74, maybe. Yes, yeah, 73. It was on Abandoned Luncheonette. That's right, right. Yeah. right. They don't even make records like that anymore. That's like Gamble and Huff. You know, that's Spinner's era. You know, that's... Oh, yeah, man. So that, that, that strikes me. It's just one of the songs that I hope you play it. And this is for guys of any age, because the great line of the song is, my face ain't looking any younger, yeah. <laughs> yeah. which is great. And, and that song's a keeper. And it, I'm glad I could put it on the list. 
you know, a lot of people think Hall and Oates, when they think Hall and Oates, they think about things like Maneater and Private Eyes and Method of Modern Love. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of people don't know that they had a great 70s career, too. Yes, they made good money. They're on the road. I know they came out on the road a few years ago and sold out the ACC. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people. A lot of hits. I mean, Sarah Smith. I mean, she's gone as a minor piece. Yeah. But man, oh man, that that track there. They, it's like it's like you, you could do a, a podcast on first albums. Oh, for sure. And and these guys left nothing in the studio on their first album. They were brilliant. And like I said, I. Huge fan of Daryl. Daryl did that TV show for years called Daryl's House. Oh, I love that. Bringing musicians and jam. And yeah. A good, my friend produced it. A, a great guy. You know, it, it's a good anchor song. It's almost like producing the great Frank Sinatra. That's mm-hmm. how good that is. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Glad we can have it on the show. No, I'm, I'm glad that you brought it because, uh, you know, I'd like to shine a little bit more light on Hall & Oates in that capacity in terms of like their older, right. o- their older career. You know, a lot of people, like I right. said, do know them for their 80s stuff, so... Check it out. The music video stuff, it's fine. I mean, they, they, but, but that's real craftsmanship there. There's, there's oh, a lot yeah. Of, that's, a, that's a well-crafted piece of, piece of soul. So I, I love it. I was going to say that, Jonathan. This is good, good, good songwriting. When you hear this song, like it, it, yep. it's got the crescendos. Like it's, it's, a, it's a thing yep. of beauty, definitely. Goo Goo Dolls is next. Name. Again, again, boy, I had a sister. Mm-hmm. And she was a big writer in Hollywood. She was uh, producing Seinfeld and worked on a lot of hip shows. And she was a stand-up comic in New York. And we weren't that close, but, you know, I kept it. But she died 25 years ago. Mm, so it's about the same time. The, the Goo Goo Dolls are from Buffalo. Mm-hmm. A, a very underrated band, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and they had this song name, which, you know, actually talks about, did you go somewhere and become a star? And, you come back down, you know, it's all kind of relationship based on, you know, maybe not someone who passed away, but it has that kind of eulogy to it. I just kind of, you know, takes me back to my sister. Mm. And not in a bad way. The other song I was I was thinking of doing is Counting Crows, Long December. Nice. Which takes place in Los Angeles where my sister lived and I go visit. And I love the Crows, by the way. Me too. I saw them a couple of years ago. They came to the Molson Amphitheater. They were fabulous. It's 25th anniversary tour. You know, very lyrical, very poetic. Oh, yeah. And the Dolls were more of a rock and roll band. Uh, but but gee, that, that name song is... And, and at my age, to have a song from the 90s that I'm, that I'm kind of involved in is, is kind of terrific, too. I'm sort of rediscovering the 90s. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm catching up. But that's another song I identify with my sister. That's great. It's a, it's a, it's a song that, that strikes me on a much deeper level mm-hmm. because it, it has a little trenchant, trenchant kind of um, impact on me. So it may not be the best song, but if I'm going to give you five songs that impact me. This is definitely one. Well, yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter, right? That's, that's special stuff, and I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Could have been, could have been Midnight Confessions when I was 14, a song I made out to my first girlfriend with, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, I think I got the first base and a half. And a half. What constitutes Grand, half? Well, you know, that, that's, under, that's under the shirt over the bra. Oh, oh and, you know, that makes that, sense. That, that, that's, that's, a, that's a base and a half. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, there's a girl from Pittsburgh at camp, and yeah. Grassroots Midnight Confessions. They're close second on that, but I, I didn't want to act too <laughs> hour on the show. Too late. <laughs> too late, right, right. I'm exposing myself, right. <laughs> 
So next is uh, Boston, More Than a Feeling. Again, I had my first serious girlfriend. It was late bloomer. I had a Bonnie Hurwitz, who became the famous Bonnie Fuller of magazine fame. Wow. And yeah, that's a whole other story. I kind of invented her, but that's another story. So she was my first girl because I was a sports editor at the Varsity UT. I had a fun time there, too. Mm -hmm. And she walked into the the, the newsroom on her right, and she kind of pursued me. And this is the exact moment where Boston came out. Ah, 79? let's face it, folks, more than a feeling, you know, there's probably a trillion couples that can say more than a feeling is their song. Oh, yeah. So that was our song, and and we had a good time. Frickin' Boston, right? There's a, there was a campaign afoot that why isn't Boston in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yes. It's a very good question. Uh, we're going to talk about the cars later, but I'm not sure there's a better single record produced in the 70s than Boston's first record yeah. in terms of content. My goodness gracious. I met Tom Scholz a couple of times. The guy's very bright guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and he produced, it's pretty much his record, you know, but he had Brad Delp, mm-hmm. you know, with the pipes. So God rest his soul too. But more than a feeling, my goodness, it, talk about a radio-ready song. Oh, yeah. And don't forget, you receive songs on your radio in your car, and, and maybe it had a stereo. That's it, you know? And you listen to a lot of it on AM radio. It was an FM all the time. This song just punched through everything. And it, it had a major impact on American rock and roll because American rock and roll was getting very stale, and, and it was getting very kind of corporate. And these guys were kind of homemade. Even though it was a well, you know, heavy production, they kind of had a rootsy feel in Boston, and everybody liked these guys. <laughs> Decent bunch of guys out, and and uh, I saw their first tour. Mm-hmm. They played Maple Leaf Gardens, I guess the '77, I guess it was. And Rick, I mean, that's where I first met Scholes and uh, Derringer. Rick Derringer was the opening act. Okay, wow. And another very nice, another very nice guy. And why is Rick Derringer not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Mm. Boston in that year with my first year with my girlfriend was. Geez, it's a good memory. You get older, you're looking for good memories. and I'll never get tired of playing that record, even though the album I'll play. I, I saw them, they came to town a few years ago with, them with a new lead singer. They were fabulous. Oh, wow. Jack had hit Delp's pipes. He hit the notes, and the sound quality was great. Again, you crank in that song. It's like years ago, I worked with Chicago. Mm-hmm. I started a, um, a little record label with Astral. TV. They had a CD plant in Florida. So I, I, my friends controlled the Chicago catalog. So I put our greatest hits record and I took Chicago out on the road. And like for guys like me, when these guys, you know, break into 25 or 6 to 4 Saturday in the park, you go, oh my God. Oh yeah. There, there's your life flashing before your eyes. It's a time machine. Yeah, that's it. You're both. And you forget how good these guys were. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. So it, it's not even a matter of the song. It's like some sort of Pavlovian response. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You go, wow. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to 25 or 64 live. I can't, you know, I'm just... And same in Boston, you know, just, it, 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 it's your life, you know. You need these signposts in your life. And, and those yeah. guys, that record, top of the food chain. Yeah. What, what, what do we have next on, on, on the hit parade? I'm having a good time. On the, on the hit parade next is The Cars, My Best Friend's Girl. Wow, okay. So the only band that I might have had a relationship with in my years as a critic for the cards. Mm-hmm. The only band that I stayed consistent with, and I knew Rick, and I knew the fellows, and I, and, I, and to, uh, so my girlfriend, the summer of 78, paper fold in Ottawa, my Bonnie at the time was in law school, but she got a summer job at the Ottawa Citizen, 
we kind of crossed in the dark and we kept commuting. And that was the summer of the Cars record. Yeah, the first one. And you couldn't buy it. It was sold. It was sold out. You couldn't get near it. My friend Nick Panasico was the promo guy for Warner for Wea. Mm-hmm. And I was a critic. I was legitimate. But he had to sneak me into their show at the Elma Combo. <laughs> that was their first date. Was the record had gone twelve times platinum, but here they were playing the Elma Combo. And and I remember taking me upstairs to meet Rick and the guys. And and I interviewed like Roy Baker after this because oh, how you produce this record. You know, Baker produced the first two Queen albums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all that, all that, all that, all that choral work. Yeah. Put that into the Cars, and I, I try to sell a book deal about the Cars' first album, how they recorded in the UK. It's a fascinating story because people don't understand that Okisik was well into his thirties when this record broke. Yeah. Him and Ben Orange sat around for decades trying to get it going. They put in their ten thousand hours for sure, right? Right. It made Okasic a slightly bitter guy, but the first Cars record, kind of like the Pet Sounds of the 70s. Mm. There's not a bad track, and even the stuff that's a little obscure, the lyrics are so wonderfully obtuse yeah. that you can listen to it 20 times and get a bunch of different impacts on it. And there were always these guys, the, the biggest losers were always the guys in Steely Dan, but the, the guys in the Cars came a close second. My best friend's girl <laughs> is, is one of the great loser songs of all time. That's right. And, and like, just what I needed, you know, losers. Yeah. <laughs> and then Okasik married Paulina Poizakova, so not so much of a loser at that point. Well, I was going to say, And I yeah. knew ben, ben did a solo record after the cars broke up, and I wrote about him. A very nice guy. He died very young. Yeah, he did. And, and I even tried to piss on them in their second record. Candy L? And I was wrong. Because yeah, the second record is still very good. I like it. Dangerous type. It, it, it takes a little more to get into it. But, you know, it's a great record. You know, the, the, these guys in America to have that kind of a record and, and to play dates. Like, this is before music videos, before MTV. Yes. And they were a, hor- they were a horrible live act. But they went out and played. And Okasik, they came to Toronto about seven, eight years ago. And I saw them. And Okasik, you know, I think he'd come out and be nice. No. <laughs> he just kind of played the songs. And I said, Rick, you got to be able no, I don't care. <laughs> no, Rick, Rick was always, I, I, when he went to a I don't need this shit, you know, he's Rick. But, but, but I remember my last article for Rolling Stone was a cover story for the record and interviewed the guys in Boston, then Rick in New York. Mm-hmm. And Rick just went crazy at this interview. He says, you know, I do everything. If it wasn't for me, they'd all be back at Berkeley fucking around with jazz, mm. you know, and he, he was, because he was his band, really. Okay. He called all the shots. I think Hawks had something to do with it, but, but not that much. And he got bitter. They only lasted another record or so after that. After Heartbeat City, I guess. Or, yeah. And, um, but but I got a soft spot for the cars, and I always, God rest the quick spell, I had a soft spot for Rick. And, and again, it, it ties into my first girlfriend. Again, there's no better radio music than the cars. Mm. They got into the hall. Wait, they should have got in way earlier. And Okasik went on to become a big producer. You know, he's a talented guy. But this many years later, the guy was in his 30s. He was 33, 34. Yeah. In this day and age, your career's over by then. 
But that wasn't terribly uncommon back then. I think a lot of guys, a lot of people paid their dues. No, but you know, you know why? They paid, yeah, because they sat around in clubs and played and played and played. Yeah. And finally they had enough. Yeah, I don't think it was uncommon. But the level which this guy hit, I mean, this is, you know, by 34, the Beatles were done. I mean, they're, 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 <laughs> you, you, could, you could postulate that they were done as solo acts, too. That's a whole other story. But I always had a soft spot for the cars. And, and I really didn't write about the first record. I ended up writing about the second record, you mm-hmm. know, Panorama, and, and then the, the other stuff. And I hung out with them in New York. I mean, one night I was in New York, an area with my, my fiance, Steve Rubell, and Ocasek. Oh wow! A very, a very, a very nice guy, by the way. And Area was the club founded by a guy named Eric Good, and it was a, a very hip space. And because I was a hipster, I got in. Mm-hmm. But Good became famous because um, he produced a little show last year called The Tiger King. <laughs> because he took all his money, he made a lot of money, and he put it into like wildlife preservation. Things. The tiger thing kind of came from that. Wow. A very bright guy. So a lot of good memories. And again, Okasik died when I consider relatively young mm-hmm. and uh, sad. Yeah. These, these guys were titans. Elliot Easton has a band. I think they go out and play with a, a guy from the Romantics who I was very friendly with. The Romantics were a band I was actually friendly with. And uh, I, and I would have done what I like about you, but it, it, it's, it's a whole other story. Yeah. Because I was tru- truly friends with those guys. And those guys actually came to Toronto a lot before they were ready. The Romantics, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. They played. They were a good friend of mine, Anya Varda, was a girlfriend of the Wallies. And they were like Catholic boys. They were nice guys. I mm-hmm. mean, they had some trouble. But that's a whole other show we can do. And the other band I was close with, which you're going to laugh, uh, the Knack. What? No, I wouldn't laugh at that. Why would I laugh at that? Yeah. I like them. Figer was a good friend of my cousin. Yeah. Uh, I, when they when they went nuts, I saw them like three times before they were anything. They played Toronto a bunch. They played the Edge, and then they played the Elma Combo, mm-hmm. and they played Massey Hall when the record went nuts. My Sharona. Yeah, and then uh, they, they they did a comeback record after the second one. Stiff. I spent a lot of time with Doug, mm-hmm. a lovely lovely guy, and he he was a Beatles scholar. Like you couldn't really talk to him about the Beatles because <laughs> he knew everything. And I remember the last time they played Toronto about 25 years ago, and they had Terry Bozio on drums. Oh, wow. Which is a bit of overkill. Um, <laughs> but and Doug and I spent some time there. He, he smoked too much. He died of lung cancer. Mm. I, I wrote his old bit. I wrote his old bit in the Globe and Mail. Oh, he wow. Died. General, these are the guys I remember being close with when I was a critic. Mm-hmm. I was American. I'm very American, very pop, which will probably lead us to the next song. The next song is the Beach Boys Surfer Girl. Yeah. When you're a kid in Toronto, I don't know how old you are. How old are you? I'm 51, John. Yeah, you're much younger than me. So if you grew up in Toronto in the 60s, yeah, long before global warming, <laughs> like when you would go outside in November and there'd be three feet of snow and you're playing shitty on Halloween yeah. and, and it never and, and it doesn't break, there's no snow removal, right? Yeah. So you're, you're, you're in drifts of snow until April. And the Beach Boys track comes on the radio because when you were a kid in Toronto in the 60s, you didn't watch TV. You listened to Chump. Mm. Your life was the radio. You, there was no youth culture until Batman and Robin got on TV mm-hmm. and Shindig. There, there was nothing. Mm. You know, until Ed Sullivan started booking acts, your whole culture came from the radio. I had a little AM clock radio by my, by my bed. That was my lifeblood. 
And then you got a transistor, God willing, at one point. You went to summer camp. Okay. You're the Beach Boys. Just as big as the Beatles for guys like me. Wow. Yeah, it's hard to explain this, but you used to go to the theaters and watch these surf movies. Don't forget, nobody had money to travel to California back then. True. My parents took me when I was 12 years old to California. None of my friends had been anywhere. I went to Malibu. I went, you know, the whole thing. I was a kid. Nobody went anywhere. This is just a kind of a fantasy that they create out there in California. Yeah, well, for sure, of course. You, 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 you could buy the clothes. You could sort of think. You, you skateboarded a bit, you know. Mm-hmm. This was a different culture. And there's many books written about it. It's a whole other show we could talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the big kahuna, the real big kahuna and all that stuff. And the Wilsons, you know, it's, it's a legendary thing. I, in Surfer Girl, I'm Jewish, right? Okay. So, the, you know, in, in Judaism, the biggest prayer is the Shema. So in my world, Surfer Girl is the Shema of beach music. <laughs> That's where the harmonies are. That's where Carl found his voice. And I guess I related to... Um, the Beach Boys hadn't played Toronto for 100 years. Okay. And then in 73, they played Massey Hall in about 120 degree heat because the building was not our air conditioning. And what we talked about before, about hearing songs live that you'd only heard on radio or on record. Yeah. And they've been, they've been living in Holland. O'Brien wasn't with the group. It was Billy Hinchy from Dino Desi and Billy and Ricky Fatar and these guys. They'd done Sail on Sailor, which was a good record. Mm-hmm. And they came out on stage and first bars of California girls. You holy shit. Magic. And my friend had a pool party afterward. I was 19, I think, at the time. And I was conscious of saying, well, this is as good as it gets as a teenager, doesn't it? Pool party after a Beach Boys club. Yeah. And a beach party. My, my friends, Miles and Lenny, opened the show. Oh, that's cool. Because they, they went to my high school, Miles Cohen and Lenny Solomon. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were kind of cool for a while. And, you know, it's those moments in your life. You, and my mother knew the box office manager at the Massiel, so we had second row. Oh, Wow. So it was, and, and you know, those, you're a kid, you go places, you knew everybody, I knew everybody in the building. Mm-hmm. So that's a Beach Boys. I still have, I, I have a, an autistic brother, a severely autistic brother, mm-hmm. who knows the words to about 20 Beach Boys songs. So when they would come to Toronto, I would take my brother, and he'd have a great time. He'd be oh, that's dancing. awesome. And I went to their 50th anniversary, I went to their 50th anniversary tour. Jeez, I don't know how long ago it was, it was a while back. Mm-hmm. They did God Made the Radio or something. And they brought the, um, like the spear mints or the double mints. But there's a Beach Boy band and, and who could sing the songs. And they brought those guys with them to, to make the harmonies work. It was a lovely night. That's great. I'm just saying that you're younger than I am, but when you were my age, yeah. it was the Stones, Beatles, Beach Boys. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm a student of that stuff, Jonathan. Like I, I love that time in music because it was very pure and it was very organic. I'm a huge Stones right. fan. I have all the records and I'm a, a fan for sure. A friend of mine, David Leese, is like a Beach Boys scholar. He did the documentary I wasn't made to these times, the Brian Wilson doc, so he yeah. knows everything. And, no, I, I I have very close friends. And the Beach Boys come on the radio. I I reviewed them. I mean, I have, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's up there with everything else. And I was a Stones fan before I was a Beatles fan. Yeah. But, but uh, the Beach Boys, Beach Boys today, no, that's, that was it. And obviously, I saw them when John Stamos was in the group. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's right. It, it, Stamos went on the road with them. Yeah. You know, whatever the internecine squabbles were, and poor Dennis and these guys. Mike Love. And the old man, terrible crap. But I think Mike Love owns the name right now. He does. He's the businessman in the group. Right. And uh, 
Carl died young, and I, you know, I, I knew these guys because they're the same management in Chicago, so mm. they toured together. So, but no, 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 the Surfer Girl. If you can't get emotional about that one, you're, there's a problem. Hey, let me ask you a question about the Stones and Beatles, Jonathan. Mm. Why were you a fan of the Stones first? Oh boy, this is, did I tell you this? So when I was 10 years old, mm-hmm. I went to camp. The Beatles were coming to Toronto. My father, being a good father, got my sister and I tickets to see the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Now, back in those days, you could send a 10 year year old on the subway to go to the show. Nothing was going to happen. Right? But I came home with bronchitis, and my mother wouldn't let me go to the show. So my father took my sister to the Beatles. So to make it up to me, they kept buying these Stones tickets. They came in the spring, then the fall, then they 66 on the Painted Black Tour. Mm-hmm. And they were just a little edgier and a little more contrary, you know. And, and, and you know, they had way more image than the Beatles. Yeah. And they, they were just, you know, bad guys, I guess, or painted as bad guys. Yeah. It, it, years later, obviously, the Beatles were so sophisticated, I didn't even get it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. The Stones weren't that sophisticated. It was kind of hit the nail on the head here a few times. Yeah. You know, I can understand, at age 12, you can understand under my thumb. Oh, yeah. You couldn't understand Norwegian wood when you were 10, 11 years old. <laughs> but, but you can understand under my thumb. Exactly. And then they go on the, the Sullivan show, and, you know, they had some great, great records. I mean, and then they had those blues tracks. Mm-hmm. And I guess it just like, it just like anything else, you just orient someone at a young age to something as powerful as that. It's hard to... I actually saw that... Um, Keith Richards' concert for the Blind thing in Oshawa. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, so Belushi was the MC. Oh, really? And uh, and I have a great photo from that. I should send it to you. Yeah. Nick, it, was really, it was sort of an Airsoft Stone show, and, and they played about nine songs, but that was... Uh, no, and I saw Nick was on, on, on SNL many years ago, a solo act. Yeah. And he did, he did the last time with Arcade Fire, and he did Let's Spend the Night Together, or 19 Nervous Breakdown. Mm. With the Foo Fighters, wow. tore the place up. Wow, that's awesome. And, he, and these guys, these guys were into it. Like it wasn't like Dave Grohl was well into it. So there's a there's a, there's a forever to Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And you know they saw them two years ago in, in New York, and yeah, Mick had come off some heart surgery or something, and mm-hmm. Keith looked like a trillion years old. They were <laughs> still good. And so I have a lot of memories, a lot of things. These are a few songs that just. I, I gave you some very personal songs. Well, no, I appreciate it. That, that, that's what the show is about. I'm not going to sit here and talk critically about music. I bring on some bring on the classic, like, you know, the King Crimson fans. I don't want, you know, I want to talk about that. Let's <laughs> talk about Robert Fripp for five or six hours. That's right. You know, I can't do that. <laughs> My son went to guitar camp at the Berkeley School of Music mm-hmm. in Boston, where a lot of the guys from uh, Cars live. Yeah. He said it was painful because these guys just deconstructed riffs. Mm. And they just took whatever magic there was out of it and, and made it like, I don't want to deconstruct Hendrix riffs. I, 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 you know, that's it. You know, I saw Hendrix twice too. So that, that was oh. also, that was a big deal. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, no, that was uh, the first time I saw Hendrix go, what the hell is this? <laughs> wow. But I, I'm, I, I've never heard this before. No kidding. Yeah, jeez. Wow. Purple Haze, you know, that's, that's powerful stuff for a 13-year-old kid, so that you see what drove me. Oh, yeah. And I wasn't into the drugs and this, that, and the other. I, I just was into the music. Yeah. Well, you were born at the right time, weren't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I got very lucky. 
Yeah, definitely. And a lot of people I know, a lot of people I know are gone. So hmm. uh, it, it's in Toronto. You know, God bless Toronto. It's a great place to hear music. You're right. You know, it just it had that sweet spot in the seventies where if you knew where things were happening, you could go. Yeah. Like the El Combo, my God, that I see bands at the El Combo. And, and this, given what's going on now, I don't know. It's very sad. Well, the good news is, is that you were able to enjoy it. You know, I had a conversation about right. that the other day that, you know, these days, the entire experience of music is completely different. How you, how you receive it, right. you know, there's no albums right. anymore and all the rest of it. But, no. um, you know, I was saying that I, I feel fortunate that, you know, I'm alive now, but I was alive back then in the days of LPs and, you know, live concerts and. Right. But you, you, you attract the experience. Yeah. The minute you left your house to go to the store. To buy the records. That's like right. I, I was on a podcast with um, Norm Wilner mm-hmm. last year, and we talked about a film called Flamingo Kid, which I enjoyed with my, my wife. And I said, it wasn't so much about the movie, which I loved, but it was, it was memory going to the theater and buying the popcorn and sitting in the seats and having my arm around her and being present enough to know that there's a 360 degrees or something. Yeah. It, it's, it, you, you're right. It's not just the music. It's, it's the ritual of listening to the music. It's, all the peripheral stuff is just as important. It's true. And I used to go to New York and mm-hmm. I'd pick up albums that weren't available in Canada yet. Oh, wow. So I was the first guy to have Braxis by Santana's. And I had a component stereo system. Now you put oil, you put this crap on a, on a system back then. My friends would go, nuts! Yeah. Look, it's coming out there! And then the Cabalis come out, it's great, you know? And, and so... <laughs> Twenty guys over to listen to records in my yeah. face. But th- those are magic times, man. Yeah, yeah. No one does that. Now you got a, a Spotify list and earbuds, and you don't share. You don't share with anybody. That was the great, the great Springsteen speech. What's that? At, at South by Southwest a few years ago, mm. when he quoted Lester. Lester Banks, yeah. And he said Elvis was the last thing everybody agreed on. Oh, I like that. And he said, he said, when Elvis died, it wasn't goodbye to Elvis, it was goodbye to you. Oh, wow. No one didn't like Elvis. Like, people didn't like the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved Elvis. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, when Elvis died, that was kind of the end of the universe. Because there really was no bigger star than Elvis. I like that. I listened to stuff on Spotify, I guess, yeah, big deal. Mm-hmm. But my friends don't listen to music anymore. I, mean, I put on some old Sinatra. Mm-hmm. I discovered Frank. Yep. You know, and I listen to, you know, a couple of channels on Sirius. Mm-hmm. And I listen to Left Sense once in a while. I like Bob. He's a nice guy. He publishes my letters. But, you know, when I, I look back at my father when he was my age, he wasn't listening to music anymore. And he was a big band guy, you know, whatever. Uh. I always talk to people who are in the music business, and we have a lot of good memories. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I and I had a good time. So I, oh. And this many, I guess, I guess you know, this, this many years that I get to do a podcast like yours, I, it brings back a lot of good memories. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that we were able to do this. It was a great chat. I really enjoyed it. I, I, yeah. I learned a lot of stuff. Thank you. So thank you. No, this has been great, Jonathan. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And you're, you're welcome back anytime. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, next time we'll, talk, we'll talk about some other stuff next time. I yeah. promise you. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely, okay. Thank you so much. All right, I'll give you a shout. Goodbye. 
All right, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Jonathan Gross. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide. 